Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. That sort of capacity to achieve strategic ends short of shooting at each other. If Oman disappears tomorrow, that capacity to do that is gone as well. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Jason Fields. The Sultanate of Amman isn't a country we often hear about in the news, which is strange given its location. The country sits next to Yemen and Saudi Arabia and across the Gulf from Iran and Pakistan. Given its relationship and location, Oman is the most important country most people have never heard of. Here to help us understand it better is security specialist Tom Orderman. Orderman spent a year and a half as an anti-terrorist advisor in the Gulf region during the Arab Spring. His work has appeared in the Small Wars Journal, and he's also been a guest on the International Spy Museum's podcast and BBC Radio. So, Tom, what's the first thing people need to understand about Oman, especially those of us who don't know anything about the country. So the first thing to understand is that there are a number of key things about Oman that just make it different than its neighbors. Some of the listeners will know that the Middle East, and particularly the Gulf region, was more or less colonized by the United Kingdom for uh, many years. And that uh, colonization period kind of uh, ended in a phased withdrawal from what the British called East of Suez uh, after about 1970. Uh, Oman was never a colony in the sense that uh, the other uh, nations were, but there's always been a very intimate relationship between Oman and the United Kingdom going back at least to the 1700s. Uh, Oman sits outside the uh, Gulf itself, uh, with the exception of the Musandam Peninsula, which is an exclave of Oman that is attached uh, to Emirati territory. So it has a geographic relationship that ties uh, a great deal to India and to Africa. So there are some uh, cultural and historical links there that are absent uh, elsewhere in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, the, the people of Oman adhere, uh, most of them, to a, a minority uh, denomination of Islam called Ibadism, which uh, actually split off from the main Sunni branch 
a number of years before uh, the Shiite branch split off. So there are some uh, religious differences that end up being key to uh, differences in the culture and, and in Omani history. So between geography and culture and history, there's just a number of factors that have kind of pushed Oman into a unique position to really have an impact on a number of different global conflicts. You make it sound like, well, let, let me understand something, actually. It's a peaceful place, at least compared to a lot of the other uh, uh, countries in the region, but it actually has strategic importance, right? I mean, what is it that it actually has to offer other than peace and quiet? You know, obviously there's geographic elements that make it a strategic powerhouse. Um, for example, uh, because it sits outside the Gulf and because it has uh, its own energy resources, although those are more modest than some of its neighbors, there are you know certainly some strategic economic um, factors at play there. Uh, as I mentioned, it's outside the Gulf, so uh, you've got the proximity to different conflicts and, and friction zones within the Middle East uh, without having to go through the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, that having been said, Oman controls one side of the Strait of Hormuz. So you actually, you know, a lot of people would look at that, you know, from a wide angle on a map and think, oh, it's the United Arab Emirates that's uh, directly across from Iran. In fact, it's Iran and Oman that control that strait. And um, some of the listeners may remember from back in 2011 or 2012, uh, there was some posturing by Iran claiming that they could mine uh, the Strait of Hormuz or, you know, kind of close that uh, artery of global energy supplies off whenever they wanted. Well, they really couldn't. And part of the reason for that is that they would have drawn the ire of Oman in so doing. Uh, part of the relationship between the different Gulf states is that Oman essentially becomes the Switzerland of the Middle East. So even though they're a member of the Gulf Cooperation Council, along with Kuwait, Bahrain, the Emirates, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia, uh, they also conduct military drills with Iran and have uh, close relations with Iran. Yeah, let me let me cut, let me jump in here real quick. First of all, I want to know more about its its energy resources and its military. Does it have oil, and what's its military like? So Oman does have oil. Its energy resources are much are, are considered maybe not much more modest, but but noticeably more modest than those of its neighbors. So you know, I spent uh, a year and a half in Kuwait, and not to offend any Kuwaiti listeners, but I was very surprised that Kuwait has so much uh, energy wealth, but you wouldn't know it from looking at the infrastructure. It looks like a third world country. You go to Muscat, you go to Salala, and you may as well be driving down a road in, in uh, Southern California. Because they have such modest energy resources, they have to be very uh, careful with how that wealth is invested. And so they take very good care of what they build, but that also impacts how they make decisions with, uh, with that money. Tying back into your second question about the military, they do have a military. As with other uh, Gulf states, a lot of that military force is focused on 
what the what the Brits would call fast jets, what we would you know call call jet fighters and that kind of thing. Uh, very much looking at an air defense, interdiction, interceptor type capability. Uh, the Omani land forces, as far as I'm aware, have not been employed since a border dispute with Yemen uh, back in 1987. Uh, they were on call during the Gulf War, but I don't believe that they actually participated in that conflict. Uh, where Oman got involved was they invited Kuwaiti citizens uh, who were displaced by the conflict to come stay in Oman, and they they uh, offered them you know lodging and and basically took care of them for the duration of the of the conflict. So you see from a lot of Omani history that that hospitality and the the willingness to engage uh, diplomatically is kind of their shtick. If Oman ceases to exist, what happens to the Middle East? Immediately what happens is not only the Gulf nations, but also the West lose a key intermediary. The Sultanate, and particularly His Majesty Sultan Qaboos, has been involved in a number of diplomatic efforts over the years, particularly between uh, Iran and everybody else who isn't Iran. Uh, listeners may remember from June 2004 and April 2007 when Iran detained uh, British sailors and Marines. It was Oman that negotiated their release. They've cooperated with Iran on defense, but they've also cooperated and held drills with the United States. Uh, British officers are still seconded to the Omani military as advisors after uh, many decades. Uh, there have been a number of hostages that have been released by uh, Oman, not released by Oman, Oman has negotiated their release. Uh, the most recent one that I'm aware of was an Indian Catholic priest who was uh, held in Yemen by uh, ISIS, and he was released in September of 2017 because of intercession by Oman. The Iran nuclear deal, whether you care for it or not, the the broker behind the scenes was Oman, and a number of those uh, negotiations took place in Oman precisely because Oman has set itself up as a neutral third party that's friends with the West, friends with the other Gulf Arab monarchies, but also maintains this relationship with Iran. So that sort of capacity to achieve strategic ends short of shooting at each other, if Oman disappears tomorrow, that capacity to do that is gone as well. During the Arab Spring, uh, am I remembering right that Oman also ran into some trouble with uh, minorities there? Not so much with minorities. You're you're remembering more or less correctly. So what happened with in Oman was there you did have uh, demonstrations. There was a, a supermarket that was burned down, and uh, I believe there may have been also some protests in uh, Muscat, the capital. I know for a fact that there were at least protests planned in Salalah. And what was interesting about it was in virtually all cases, uh, as opposed to, you know, protests that we've seen in Iran that have said down with the dictator or, um, you know, in other uh, locales that, you know, like in Tunisia, where uh, the the uh, longtime president was ousted or the same in Egypt and Yemen the protests were actually posed as supplication to Sultan Qaboos. So it was asking for his intercession 
to alleviate different uh, grievances that different groups within the Sultanate held. That kind of points to a very interesting uh, situation with the Sultanate. Uh, Sultan Qaboos remains exceptionally popular with his subjects. Uh, there's there's real anxiety about the the prospect of an Oman after Sultan Qaboos. Can you can you tell me what the source of that is? What kind of reforms has he done, or or things that he's given to the people? Before Sultan Qaboos, his father Sultan Said had he had some fairly antiquated ideas. Was very austere in many of his beliefs uh, to the degree that. Uh, people were not allowed to travel within the Sultanate. People were not allowed to wear glasses. There's a, there were only a couple of miles of actual paved roads in the entire country. There's a famous story that uh, prior to Sultan Qaboos coming to power, Sultan Saeed's rule for uh, Muscat was that a man was not allowed to be outside the city gates without, without a lantern or something to that effect. So before... Uh, Sultan Qaboos took power from his father in 1970. We're talking about a country that was essentially like some of the villages we see in coverage of in Afghanistan, where there's no electricity, there's no education, there's no medicine. It's really, you know, it was living in the dark ages. And so Sultan Qaboos uh, took power in a bloodless coup that is generally believed to have been assisted or at least uh, condoned by the British government. That was in July of 1970, and his father went into exile in the United Kingdom for the remainder of his life. And Sultan Qaboos immediately embarked on what's now known as the Omani Renaissance. The first step of that was that Oman had previously existed as essentially a very loose confederation of uh, Muscat, which was essentially the, the coastal areas of Oman. Oman proper, which was the, the uh, mountainous inner region uh, outside Muscat. Uh, you had Buremi, which was kind of a, a contested area uh, up north on the border of what's now the United Arab Emirates. And then down south near Yemen, you had uh, an area called Dofar. And so one of his first acts was to unify the country and say, this is no longer the Sultanate of Muscat and Oman. We are now the Sultanate of Oman. We are a unified country. And then he uh, enacted, you know, sent not only boys, but also girls to school. So Oman has an exceptionally well-educated populace, including women who hold jobs commensurate with those of men. He pushed electricity and, and just, you know, started with the basics and built a country that was basically in the Stone Age, into what is now a modern country. So all of that, is that why there's no Islamic State, or is there an Islamic State out uh, branch there? Uh, all of the ter uh, terrorist groups that we've all come to know and um, uh, not love, nothing in Oman at all? No. Um, so... I've never heard any mention of Oman connected with uh, ISIS, Daesh, the Islamic State, what have you. There have been a very small handful of Omanis uh, from the minority Sunni community who have uh, ended up being captured or killed in Afghanistan. But this goes back to uh, ISIS and uh, 
Al Qaeda and, and most of the major gr- uh, insurgent militant terrorist groups in the Middle East uh, subscribing to either Sunni or, you know, in the case of some of the groups sponsored by Iran, uh, Shiite ideology. Very, you know, very, you know, sort of splinter extremist uh, on on whichever side of that. Oman is Ibadi, so they're not tied to either of those uh, sort of opposition uh, extremist factions. So there's a very small demographic from which any of those groups would even try to recruit from Oman. So very little of that. What what you did see, and this is essentially long since past, is in the 1960s, uh, there, there was the Jebel Akhtar War in 19 between like 1956 and 1959 and that was between sultan saeed uh, the current sultan's father and uh the ibadi uh, religious authorities that were in the omani mountains uh outside muscat um but you did have a, a lengthy insurgency that was sponsored initially just by tribal leaders who were uh, disillusioned with Sultan Saeed's rule, and later were co-opted by communist insurgents in neighboring uh, South Yemen. So that's about the closest thing they've had to an actual insurgency. All right, War College listeners, we're going to take a break right there. We're on with Tom Orderman Jr., and we're learning about Oman. We'll be back after this message from our sponsors. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. All right. Thank you, War College listeners. Welcome back to the podcast. We are talking to Tom Orderman Jr., and we're learning all about Amon. So let me ask. Caboose is ailing, right? So... What comes next? Does he have a son or daughter who is going to step into the breach and continue things as they are? Or is there now a danger after his death? Well, that is the million real question, isn't it? Uh, Sultan Qaboos was married very briefly to one of his cousins, and that marriage did not produce an heir. The rumor is that he has a safe or a desk drawer or something that has an envelope in it with instructions and or his choice for a successor. And that upon his death, that envelope is to be opened. And then uh, essentially his family has the clock starts ticking for them to make a decision of how to proceed. Uh, There are some potential successors Uh, from what I understand 
uh, his cousin, Assad bin Tariq, who was uh, appointed a couple of years ago as the Deputy Prime Minister for International Relations uh, and Cooperative Affairs, and who has also served as Sultan Qaboos's personal representative. Uh, many believe that he's favored to win. He also has a, a son named Taimur bin Assad. He's uh, quite a bit younger, obviously, because he's a son of the Sultan's cousin. That would set up a sort of succession that would be sort of similar to what we're seeing in places like Qatar and Saudi Arabia, where you have uh, an older successor who is then uh, poised to pass on um, power to a younger son. Uh, there are a couple of other brothers of Assad bin Tariq. Haitham bin Tariq is the heritage and culture minister. Shihab bin Tariq is the former commander of the Royal Navy of Oman. And then uh, there's an outside uh, chance that um, a cousin from another uh, branch, Fahad bin, bin Mahmoud, who's been the deputy prime minister for the Council of Ministers, that he could be uh, a potential uh, option. My understanding is that he has a European wife and so has a, a son of mixed ancestry, so there's some speculation that that would dissuade the sultan from choosing him as a uh, successor. But those are kind of the, the uh, key candidates at this point. That strikes me as no way to run a country. Isn't that a really great way to set the next generation up for some sort of succession war? The smart people who have been following this longer than I have don't believe that's the case. Uh, they believe that this system with the, the uh, mysterious envelope actually puts the Sultan's remaining family members in a position where they have to uh, come to a consensus themselves, similar, similar but not exactly like what's happened in uh, former successions in the Saudi royal family, where there was somebody in line, but essentially the Saudi royal family, the, that inner circle of the family, had to agree on who was going to be the next uh, crown prince or who was going to be the, the successor. I think it's the, the theory is that this system gives the opportunity for sincere buy-in. And by only having a handful of uh, eligible uh, folks, I suspect that it'll probably be a smooth transition. So what you're telling me is that there's a very peaceful, economically stable, politically stable uh, actor in the Middle East that's rational, is friends with the West, and is trying to get everything smoothed out. That may be putting it a little bit uh, with too much of a bow on it. Uh, I mean, if you look at the economic piece, they do have a desire to diversify their economy, just like any of the other, um, you know, petro states in the Gulf. There's anxiety over where the future future of the oil market is going to go. So they're, you know, for example, they've made efforts to shore up their port facilities. There's a brand new port. I believe it's in a city called Dukum that's kind of out in the middle of nowhere on the coast of the Indian Ocean. Their main port is in kind of the second city of Oman, which is Salala. Um, and so they're they're trying to increase traffic to those ports. They're trying to increase tourism, uh, doing so in a responsible way. Um, there's also the question of what are all these Omanis going to do? 
the total population of Oman, if I remember correctly, is about 3 million, but there are a lot of expatriate laborers in that, uh, in that demographic. And so there's been a push over the last several years for Omanization or Omanification of the workforce that has met with um, mixed results, uh, similar to many of the other Arab Gulf monarchies. It's very attractive to have uh, a sinecure position at the oil ministry or some other ministry or some state-sponsored company where um, you know the the ramifications of what you do aren't aren't uh, aren't critical. Um, but there is progress along those lines. But so it's not all uh, rainbows and butterflies as Maroon Five. Uh, might say, but overall, yeah, Oman is this amazing country that has been able, largely through the wisdom of Sultan Qaboos, to uh, avoid a lot of the problems that we see elsewhere in the Middle East. It really is an amazing country that nobody's ever heard of. You're really hurting our brand of terrifying the audience. Well, how about this? Where is Oman next door to? There is uh, no shortage of anxiety. In fact, I saw an article this morning in Al Monitor uh, about Omani anxiety over what's going on in Yemen. There's, uh, you know, been a civil war in Yemen now, you know, really going on for a very long time, but specifically since around 2011, and there were skirmishes before that. Um, the Omanis have relations, uh, particularly, they, they have a great deal of influence in the easternmost province of Yemen, which I believe is called Almara province. Um, obviously they share a border there. Um, and so their, their Almara province has not been impacted uh, in the way that many other areas of Yemen have, such as uh, Aden and Sana'a and what have you. But the Omanis are anxious about that. Uh, in particular, you know, they have to be looking at what's gone on the last uh, few days where you've got an Emirati-backed faction that is allegedly angling for secession from the rest of the country. That war that Oman fought, uh, the, the civil war that took place in the southwest province of Dofar in the 1960s and 70s, that was sponsored by communist insurgents in South Yemen. So there's definitely a memory in, in the case of Oman of what happened in the 1960s and 1970s. And I think they would very much like to avoid having to worry about that in the future. And so Yemen has given them some anxiety and, and that's part of why they've remained diplomatically engaged. I know that um, uh, bef at some point before his recent death, Ali Abdullah Saleh, the former president of Yemen, had uh, briefly been in exile in Oman. Uh, there was another Yemeni uh, opposition figure, Ali Salem al-Baid, who um, I don't know if he's still in Oman, but he had taken up refuge in Oman at least for a while as part of a deal negotiated by the Sultanate. So between them and the uh, Indian priests that I mentioned earlier, there's certainly continued um, interest in and uh, diplomatic intervention in Yemen, but that's got to keep the, the uh, Omanis up at night. 
Well, thank you so much, Tom. Really appreciate you taking us through this. No problem. All right, War College listeners, that does it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. War College is me, Matthew Galt, and Jason, Jason Fields. If you like the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes. Uh, it is really helpful for us that it helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at war underscore college and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash war college podcast. We'll see you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>